Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Cece Zhang, who's the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Razorfish. Cece, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We go way back, so this is going to be a great conversation just because I've obviously admired your career as it's been kind of exploding over the last five, seven, eight years. So I'm super excited to to explore it with you in this conversation. Before we get into all the questions, why don't you just take us through your career journey leading up to today? Sure. And thanks, Peter, for having me. Um, So I think I probably had a little bit of a different journey into agency life than maybe most people have. My background is actually in finance and management. So in college, I studied finance with the intent of actually going into sales and trading or investment banking. And at the time, it was around the financial crisis. So even though I was more interested in sales and trading, because I was more interested in markets and foreign exchange and all those things related to sales and trading, um, at the time, I thought that As an industry, sales and trading was a little bit less stable than investment banking. And so I made the decision to go into banking because I thought there would be, if whatever happened, there'd be more of a transferable skill set that I could take into other roles. Um, And so coming out of college, I went into investment banking. Um, So if you're not as familiar with the program, the analyst program is usually a two-year program. And probably about a year or so in, I knew that it wasn't really the right fit for me. And so, you know, ironically, I'd made this decision to go into investment banking because it was more stable and because there was a lot more opportunity that I could see, you know, at the time that I made that decision. But about a year or so in, after I'd worked on a few projects and pitches and deals, I really got the sense that I didn't necessarily want to stay in finance. And You know, from then I decided, well, after my one year mark in the program, maybe I can start looking at other opportunities. And at the time, I had a really good friend from college who was working at Razorfish. And he and I actually, when we were in college, we had taken this class together called Operations and Information Management. And in that class, it was really about linear programming and trying to optimize different data sets to get to specific outcomes um, for businesses in a nutshell. And so he and I would be talking about the types of work that he was doing at Razorfish. And he had been working in marketing then for quite some time because he had interned also in different marketing roles. And through that conversation, it was very clear, you know, he was saying, Cece, I think you'd be a lot more interested in, in working in a role at Razorfish than, you know, in investment making. And so when I was making that decision to make that jump away from finance, that really kind of stood out to me. And there happened to be a role that was open at Razorfish that he referred me to. And so I interviewed at Razorfish and then started my career there. So I was at Razorfish for probably four or so years, four to five years. Um, At that time, data was kind of in its infancy. I think there's a lot of discussion around big data and how data would start to change how companies operate. But 10 or so, 10, 12, 15 years or so, uh, years ago, it was still relatively new. So right. people were using data mostly for reporting. There was also less um, technical advancement. So when you're thinking about compute power, so where you're using a lot of really big data sets today, that didn't exist as much in that capacity then. And so clients were still relatively new to using data in terms of strategy. So after four years or so at Razorfish, I thought, okay, well, 
you know, I have this finance background. I've now worked in marketing for a while. Maybe I'll try something different and get some operational experience. So I decided to work at a startup because I figured that would give me a complement to my skill set and very different kind of path forward. And so I, I moved from Razorfish to a startup. Um, I was also a little bit naive at that time. I thought that, oh, well, you know, there's all these challenges with data for all these large established companies. If I'm at a startup, right. magically, you know, you're starting from scratch. Those, those challenges won't exist. And so I had a little bit of naivete there. Um, <laughs> but I was at this startup and it was a very interesting challenge trying to work through, again, using data for different capabilities at the time for e-commerce. So developing a universal product catalog was one of them. Um, but after a few months, you know, one of the clients that I'd worked with at Razorfish had reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in coming back. And her perspective was, you know, we know that you were interested in doing different things and you're looking for more of an operational role, but what if we could create something for you, you know, on the, the client work that she was leading and have me back in a consultative capacity at Razorfish. Um, so I was at the startup for about five or six months and then ended up coming back to Razorfish. And I think at that time was really when the conversations around data management platforms of DMPs started accelerating. And there's a lot more focus on, well, how do we bring these different data sets together to do more interesting things for our clients that we didn't do before because of the advent of these different platforms. Um, So that was about seven or eight years ago. And since then, I've just been within Razorfish in different roles on the data team and expanding, again, that partnership with clients and really trying to unlock the, the potential of data for them. So, I mean, lots of stuff that I want to unpack immediately. And I think particularly with a start in finance and one around, you know, trading and investment banking, there's obviously a lot of prestige that comes with that profession. And back then, right, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, data analysts or data science, they weren't quite like the super sexy roles that they've become over the last decade plus. So, you know, how did you, for example, manage that aspect of the shift away from investment banking? Because you've obviously done a lot of education in that direction. You've done the work. It's not that you weren't being successful in that space, right? But you obviously had to weigh happiness and engagement and whether or not this is what you really wanted with what you've worked towards, the prestige of the role, the outward perspective of the role. How did you How did you kind of manage that decisioning? Because I know there's a lot of people that's something that a lot of people struggle with when they're looking to potentially transition out of something they're not wholly happy in. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think taking a step back, I had left my analyst program early. So most people, they complete their two years and then right. they decide if they go into a different path within finance or they do something else. And so I left a year early because I, I thought, you know, I didn't want to stay in finance. And so your questions around, well, what did that really mean for me and my career and how I thought about it were really actually very resonant and pertinent at the time because, again, data wasn't this really kind of focused field at the time where there's a lot of data science and there's a lot of investment in specific data capabilities. And so I remember actually in my first few years at Razorfish, I would ask myself a lot, did I make the right decision? Because right. again, you know, I'd left the program earlier. And so I see my peers, my friends, and folks that I went to college with, they're still on this, this path that is very kind of straightforward for them. And for me, it was, I clearly took a step away from that. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of questions around, was this the right decision? And I think what I realized at the time was, even though there wasn't as much focus on data, I still felt that there was still potential there. And One of the things that I ended up doing early on in my career is because I had that finance training, when applying 
things um, like financial modeling to media spend, for example, was not really an output at the time or a deliverable right. that we gave to clients at the time. It was something that I was able to focus on that was a little bit more unique and differentiated early on in my career. It also enabled me to kind of still have that bridge into my training and my experience prior to then. And so, you know, early on in my career, when I was wondering, well, is this the right decision? What are some of the areas and the potential opportunities that I can really push towards? Because again, there was still kind of a gap between this notion of big data versus what we were doing um, in-house and for our clients at the time. It was really leveraging some of my skill sets and my experiences within finance and bringing that to clients in a different way. So while we're providing the fundamental reporting, so looking at business metrics and KPIs, also having a lens on, well, what if we looked at your media differently? What if we looked at trying to forecast ROI on media spend differently and right. ROI on different investments? So we know that you want to invest in some technical capabilities, as an example. What if we looked at that all together um, from this very financial lens? And I kind of brought that into the work that I was doing to, again, build that bridge to what I'd been doing before, but also put a more uh, holistic lens of just how we're thinking about data overall and its place in shaping marketing orchestration and media optimization. And so I wonder, you know, having that kind of unique skill set in the data space, particularly in the way that an agency or we as an agency back then were supporting, uh, you know, large digital organizations, regardless of what the industry vertical was. Did you find that that helped kind of accelerate your growth because you were maybe able to deliver impact to clients that others weren't because they lacked that skill set or that knowledge in terms of how to apply like a totally outside type of modeling and thinking to, you know, areas of marketing that maybe previously folks weren't doing that translate to like acceleration? Yeah, I think so. And I think when I speaking to this specific client that wanted to bring me back for the work that she was doing, that was one of the clients where I had introduced this idea of, well, let's look at some light modeling capabilities or light ROI forecasting. And I think that helped, again, provide more of a, just a different way of looking at media investment that they appreciated and was very different. And then also, again, looking at, well, as we're doing these unlocks from a media perspective, how do we do the same thing for these other things like DMPs that we're bringing on at the same time? Um, I do think, and to your question about just the different kind of perspectives, that because I had that experience early on in my career, it's also something that I try to do for my team as well, just looking at people's different backgrounds, if they're coming from academia, from other agencies, finance or consulting, and specific areas that they like to focus on or skill sets that they have, and really just allowing them to be kind of creative in that yeah. sense and apply different their experiences and their lenses and perspectives on client business challenges. Um, that's what I've appreciated about my time at Razorfish because it, it could have been easily, well, that's great that you have that skill set, but it's not really useful. But right. it's very fortunate that, you know, my, my clients, my managers at the time were very open and receptive to that. And so I try to do that for my teams as well. I love that because, I mean, the reason I ask about the acceleration is because, you know, as somebody who was, uh, we worked uh, a couple of times together many, many years ago. And then I think I was sort of watching your career from afar as somebody who's just like exploding through the ranks. And so as, you know, and for me to see a fellow kind of data analytics peer or, or um, professional do that is just, it was exciting. Right. And, and I admire it to this day. And so, as you kind of were able to accelerate that way, though, to go from, you know, a senior manager, director to VP to, you know, beyond that in a pretty short period of time during, 
you know, periods of change for the organization too, as well as across, you know, the last three or four years, massive periods of change for the world. Talk a little about how you've been able to scale yourself successfully and continue that momentum because that is exhausting, right? Because that means that you're just constantly raising the bar. You're never letting yourself kind of mellow out somewhere for a period of time. You just haven't had time in, in, in just given the rise that you had. Talk a little bit about that journey and some of maybe the challenges that you've had to overcome to continue that momentum. Yeah, that, that's a great question too. So I think, um, and a lot of this comes back to, again, exiting and joining the exiting college and joining the workforce at the time of the financial crisis. And then also the specific training um, in finance, which kind of teaches you that your role is replaceable. And right. for every person that, you know, there's a finite analyst class. And for every person that's there, there's multiples of people who, who would want to be in your seat. Um, and so I think from a, you know, trajectory perspective, just coming from that mindset of, well, there's always a different perspective to bring to our clients and to our internal teams for data specifically, knowing that data is very new and kind of on the frontier of driving a lot of business strategy now, especially over the past few years. Um, Coming from that perspective, it was very much, well, what are all the the different tools and the technologies that we can use to make an impact for our clients? So I kind of alluded to this earlier, but 10 or 12 years ago, the compute power wasn't necessarily there, right? To be able to have a, a giant data set to be able to do a lot right. of really in-depth analysis. And so you're you're limited in some sense to more service area now, service level analyses. Um, but over time, it was also myself getting more familiar with the different tools. Because again, I don't have the same kind of technical background as maybe a lot of people from a data science or a data engineering perspective have. And so getting familiar and up to speed with the different tools that the different platforms provide, the different um, cloud solutions that are optimal for our clients, et cetera. Um, And I think it all comes back to that idea of there's always additional value that we can bring and unlock for clients as long as we're always thinking about this growth mindset of what is there going on in the industry and in the world that we can think about in a more creative way that helps address specific business challenges beyond just data, but when thinking about using data in a smart and an applicable way. I think that makes total sense. And I wonder, you know, especially from even myself, right, as I grow within my own career, right, broadening my understanding of different data platforms, of different tools, techniques, ways of working, operating models, that just makes me better at being able to strategize and look at things um, big picture wise and understand how data as an asset, right, can influence and drive business results for an enterprise. And I think so that makes total sense to me. But in terms of developing the skills to be a successful leader, not just in terms of your thought leadership and your capabilities, obviously that's without reproach, but also a leader of people, you know, scaling the amount of folks that you were steering very quickly. And then, you know, the inherent changes in your role and expectation, right? To go from delivering solutions to um, leading teams that are delivering solutions to uh, creating thought leadership and steering the perspective of an organization in a, in an entire delivery area, how, how exactly did you continue to be successful at each stage? Because I think, you know, obviously it doesn't happen by accident. It is intentional. So what sort of work did you do for anyone who's listening out there who wants to be on that type of accelerated growth path themselves? Yeah, I think I've been um, very fortunate at Razor Fish and elsewhere in my career to have had very good mentors and very good examples of people, managers, and leaders who have spent time with me either directly or indirectly and where I could learn from them. 
And one of my actually early examples, when I was at Razorfish 12 or so years ago, my people manager at the time um, would set up these weekly meetings. They were Monday morning at 10.30 a.m. every Monday. And we would talk about what I was doing for the week. And I use this example because I think it was actually very fundamental to how I think about people management. And he spent the time week after week, just ask me what was going on. Um, and when I was, you know, very junior, I would be thinking, we just spoke about my project last week. Do we really need to speak again? Because realistically, there's not that much changing week over week. Um, but what I really appreciated was that he was very, very available in terms of, because he had set that precedent of, okay, we're going to check in every week to understand what you're working on, what some of the challenges are, where you are, where you are working with some of the teams on certain processes that kind of just set this expectation that, okay, well, now I know my people manager is available if I ever, ever have questions and fostering that kind of communication and that ability to reach out whenever I needed help was very helpful. And this is something that I've shared with him over time as well. And I think that has actually translated into um, when I became a people manager and when I was still very early on in my career, setting up the time with individuals on my team so that I could get to know them and get to know what they were working on and carrying that through. And then as I've gotten more senior in my career, keeping that mentality of, okay, making sure that I'm setting up time with people on my team. And of course, as a team gets bigger, there is less ability to do that weekly, but I do try to meet with everybody on the team who reports directly to me bi-weekly or on a monthly cadence, or in some cases, um, for more junior folks on the team who are not direct reports, I'll meet with them annually and just check in and see how things are going. And I think um, for me personally, being able to know that the team that we're creating and that the projects that we're working on are still things that individuals on the team are very passionate about is very important to me in creating that culture of collaboration and that culture of innovation. And so it is important for me to set up those check-ins and to to work with people. And by no means am I saying, you know, check-ins are the one solution from a people management perspective. But I do think that early experience that I had with my own managers and setting up time with them and having them check-in with me really created this dynamic that I wanted to foster and continue as I've elevated and grown my career in my current role. Absolutely. I think the sentiment of even with, you know, as now is leading an entire capability, connecting on whatever cadence is feasible with even the most junior folks makes them feel seen, makes them feel recognized, right? Gives them an opportunity to impress upon you the impact that they're having, right? So that I I could absolutely see the immense value of that. And then obviously all the cadences that sit in between there. And I really like the idea of kind of enabling them to create space to within their roles, pursue kind of what their passion areas are within data or digital or whatever the case is. Um, And so that makes absolute sense to me. And I'm I'm curious also just, you know, as you've kind of stepped into the role as a leader and and elevated and, and grown as a leader, are there particular things that you've taken this opportunity now to advocate very strongly for now that obviously the influence of your voice has scaled too? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, early on in my career, when I was trying to figure out, well, what's the best way for me to add value? You know, I was kind of playing around with these different financial quote unquote models, if you will, for media. Um, I had that opportunity to bring in things that I was interested in and passionate about to the work that I was doing. And so I do try to do that for the broader team in terms of understanding 
and with my leadership team as well, understanding individuals' skill sets as well as things that they're passionate in. So there's individuals who are passionate about AI or Web3 or gaming and AR and VR and really trying to give people the opportunity. It's not perfect by any means, but give people the opportunity to start exploring different areas um, because we all know when individuals you know, are more leaned in and, and motivated by the work that they're doing and they see the application of different things that they can do, yeah. it adds a lot more value for the work and makes it more meaningful for us, but also adds more value for our clients. So I do try to provide that opportunity on the team. I think um, ultimately it comes down to being able to be very kind of transparent in that way of here's the reasons why we're checking in with you and having these conversations about your own career ambitions or your right. personal and your professional ambitions and trying to tie in those individuals who are really interested in these other areas outside of data, but bringing them into what they do on a day-to-day. And again, it's not perfect, but by, I think by being able to showcase that there is a path forward and you can be you know unique in the way that you're approaching these different types of business challenges, it makes the, the team and the work output just that much better. Yeah, I love that. I, I I think that absolutely connecting interests and stuff like that just absolutely facilitates, you know, just greater output. And the more connective tissue a person has to their work, to the workplace, right, to their team and the opportunities that they have in front of them, I think it just drives better output. Um, so that I think that makes total sense. And I'm curious also just... Um, I recently spoke with an individual in, in a completely different space, but he's an educator and a teacher and he was named, um, his name's Kareem Neal and he was named the Arizona state teacher of the year. And then he was inducted to the national hall of fame, which I, I can't imagine there are greater accolades for a teacher. And he talked about the, the things that opened up those opportunities to be rewarded that way and recognized that way were when he um, found his approach as the leader of a classroom and kind of developed his mentality and his voice and stuff like that and evolved it into what really unlocked what he was able to unlock from students. And I'm wondering, as you've kind of been a leader for many years now, have you found a specific style of leadership that really works well for you? Because obviously there are, I think, generally accepted ways of leading that uh, work, but you have to have the right personality. You have to have the right character traits. It has to resonate with you internally, as well as the folks that are on your team. Have you found a style that you're comfortable with that resonates with obviously the large capability that you're leading now? I think stylistically, one thing that has always been true in my career is I've always been just very curious about other people and their motivations, because I think that by being able to find, you know, it doesn't matter what similarities or differences you have, professionally and personally, but by understanding individuals' motivations, you can understand, well, again, how do you construct a team or a dynamic where people are very motivated and they get that kind of um, meaning and that recognition that they, they look for while also delivering on a, a specific output? Um, so I'd say stylistically, the first thing that I try to do with my teams is just really understand individuals um, and spend time with people. And that, that's why I'm such a big proponent of having my check-ins with individuals on the team. Um, and speaking to others on the team that I don't necessarily get to work with, because obviously if I get to work with individuals and specific folks on the team, I get to know their styles and I get to know what they like to do and what motivates them. But there's also a large number of people that I just don't have that opportunity to work with on a day-to-day basis. And so by being able to, to check in with them, I do try to facilitate this environment where, you know, we're leading with curiosity for individuals. We're trying to understand how do we best match to the best of our capability 
their individual skill sets, their passions, their interests into specific client work. And again, it's not perfect, but I think by just being able to provide that level of clarity that this is what we're trying to do, it does provide an opportunity for people to raise their hands and also to see, okay, well, I might not like this project that I'm on because no no job is perfect and nobody's ever going to be 100% happy uh, all the time at work, but I might not like the specific project that I'm on, but I know that from these learnings and from these experiences that I'm going to be set up for XYZ that I've explained to my people managers and uh, people on the team and the leadership on the team that I am more interested in. And I think that kind of curiosity is what I try to do in terms of leading by example and also try to foster among the rest of the team because everybody is coming in with different experiences and diverse perspectives on how to tackle a problem for a client. Yeah. And by having that curiosity, I think you can really unlock a lot of that. Oh, that's an interesting idea that, you know, you wouldn't have come up with on your own, but but because you're curious and you're open-minded and can share those opinions more broadly across the team, you can collaborate for a better solution. No, I love that. The idea of leading with curiosity, I think, opens up uh, a much more inclusive space too, right? Because you're by default looking to extract someone's thinking and opinion with a, a, a authentic intention to to use it, as opposed to you know uh, deflect it or put it down or whatever the case may be, right? It comes from a much more positive place when when leading with curiosity. So I really like that and the articulation of that. Um, in terms of you know, where, for example, we overlapped most heavily, we had an opportunity on a global client, we were working on this huge, you know, pursuit. And uh, it was probably one of the greatest periods of work life in balance, maybe for each of our careers during that kind of stretch of weeks and months. But I know just in my experience in speaking with you and, and, and interacting with since that like, worth work life balance is something that's critically important to you and mental well being. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on that and, and, you know, how do you manage those moments of huge imbalance, right, and and course correct them to maintain, you know, the closest thing to balance that we can? I will say, I don't think I personally do a good job of that, <laughs> but I think for the team as a whole, um, going back to this idea of curiosity, knowing that people have lives outside of work, that they have their hobbies, they have their families and their interests, and really on the team trying to create this environment where we work very hard, but we want people to take the time that they need. And at the end of the day, we're very empathetic to having individuals take a break and step away from the computer and step away from their phones. Um, It is very hard to do, I think, but by just having that as kind of the baseline from a team perspective that, hey, individuals can take the vacation and they can plan for their trips or they can step away from work for whatever reason at the last moment if they need to and that the the team will be fine and carry on. Um, I think it's very powerful because it creates that, that sense again of camaraderie and collaboration on the team versus oh, I always need to be working and always on. I think for me personally, um, because, you know, we, me and and my leadership team, we try to provide that to our day-to-day teams. There's probably less of a balance on our end. Um, But I think, you know, that's something that with trial and error over time, hopefully we'll be able to to solve more as um, it becomes, uh, you know, I would say, we, we find a, a dynamic that's more sustainable for everybody versus yeah. just um, certain folks on the team. Um, but that's something that because we try to do for everyone on the team, um, I, I think it does make a difference because even though people are working hard, they know that they can at any moment, they can step back and they will have that ability to set the boundaries between their work life and their personal life. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I, and uh, particularly, you know, 
as somebody who did not use all of their vacation this year and will not be able to use all of it by the end of the year. I think that resonates with me deeply. And I think, you know, this idea of making sure that we're encouraging, right, and mitigating the the challenges associated with taking vacation as leaders, I think that's a really big um, a really big unlock for happiness within the team to know that they're not only, you know, it's okay to take their vacation and, and time off for themselves and prioritize themselves, but actually encouraged to do so. I think that's a really big deal. And, you know, from here, I'd love to uh, maybe pivot a little bit and nerd out on kind of where things with data are going. Because you talked about, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, analytics, digital analytics, it, it was very much in its nascency. It's not that there weren't, you know, boatloads of data and tons of people working with that data, but the tools, the compute power, the techniques, the general uh, leveraging of data as a strategic differentiator and enabler, like at the core of most things that organizations do, we've come light years since then, right? And it's been a really exciting thing to witness over the last decade. So right now, obviously, we've got the onset of Gen AI. We've got, obviously, cloud computing scaling the capabilities and this amount of data we're able to use and leverage meaningfully and efficiently. What what do you think is like the next frontier from here? And, and what are the big innovations that we're going to see over the next you know, one, two, three years and beyond, even if you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I think um, from an innovation perspective, it probably sounds very simple, but I actually think in this world that we're in with evolving privacy regulations, with AI and personalization is actually going more back to the basics of just more simple experiences and simple personalization to drive more, again, meaningful connection with customers. And the reason why I say back to basics is because I do think a lot of the industry is kind of in a reset right now because of the acceleration of cookie deprecation, which most likely is going to happen in the second half of 2024, which means that a lot of the, the ways of media buying and measurement will be less effective over time as these signals get deprecated. Um, but I think it's back to basics because at the same time, you have the rise of these different technologies like AI to drive more personalized experiences. So on one hand, you have a challenge where you don't have as many data signals as you had before. On the other hand, you have this technology that can drive great personalization for customers. And I think it goes back to, well, what are those actually meaningful and resonant experiences that matter the most. So I think instead of seeing, um, you know, the customer journey as fragmented, which it kind of has been, um, we, we talk about it end to end a lot, but I think for the, the most part, uh, it's been a little bit fragmented because we think of, we tend to think of uh, interactions in a silo, even though we're planning holistically. But now that you're losing all these signals across the overall customer journey, it is really thinking about, okay, you know, as a brand or an organization, where are the moments where I want to be either engaging with a customer or intercepting with that, intercepting them along the customer journey to make an impact for the specific message that I'm relaying. And so I think it comes down to being really thoughtful about the measurement frameworks that we want to set up, being thoughtful about the types of test designs that we want to construct to kind of get that information as signals get deprecated. And then also thinking about the right tool set from a data and a technology perspective. So whether it's cloud solutions, whether it's testing different generative AI capabilities to drive that personalization and kind of take a step back from that always on one-to-one personalization, but see where consumers are reacting and customers are, are more show more affinity. I think that will be a key theme 
2024, especially as we also think about the rise of owned experiences as people are going on websites and what that means and how the browsing behavior changes with AI, et cetera. I think I, I really like this idea of kind of going back to the basics and it resonates with me because I've particularly been observing a lot of uh, organizations and clients that I'm dealing with. And I'm curious to hear if you're seeing the same is that they're facing the accumulation of many, maybe suboptimal decisions that were made over time now and the and the need for a reset and not just connected to deprecation of cookies but just in general around the quality of their data the quality or redundancy of platforms inside of their ecosystem and having to you know rationalize and try and get lean and efficient again right and making sure their data is actionable that all takes a ton of work right but i'm i'm curious because what your opinion is because i'm seeing a lot of organizations looking to, for example, Gen AI and and perceiving it as this like maybe silver bullet solution to be able to course correct for some of that, whether it's through, you know, automated insight generation and all those things. But I'm of the opinion that it still requires you to have these foundational things done well and done in a highly integrated and actionable way that can easily be then activated using things like Gen AI. It doesn't solve the inherent issues that have built up over time. I'm curious to your perspective on this. I would agree with that. I think Gen AI as a tool is, is very powerful and it has a lot of applications for use cases that can drive a lot of value to brands and organizations and to the end consumer at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, it's a tool among many tools and on its own, there's only so much that it can do. But when you're thinking about the, I think you alluded to the investments that different companies have made, there's different roles for the different tools to play, right? right. Whether it's some companies have, um, or some brands have CDPs. There's a role where the CDP and something like AI, and even if it's not Gen AI, but you just have machine learning models um, that they work together and they work together well. And then you have Gen AI on top of that. So I do think the foundation, there's a lot of opportunity in 2024, specifically for setting the right foundation and starting to, again, through this idea of testing and learning, really understand, well, where am I getting the most value out of my overall right. ecosystem? And then where can I add in additional capabilities and innovation on top of that after I've understood what the right foundation is and where we're driving the most resonance with consumers. I'd say that ultimately, from a consumer perspective, consumers want meaningful experiences that are very thoughtful, that are very um, kind of complementary to what they're doing in their day-to-day versus something that is just coming completely, um, I'd say, not out of left field, but just not really resonant with what they're doing. Right. Like, you know, if you're on a website and then you kind of get this distraction. Um, so I think ultimately it's really thinking through the lens of the consumer and what are those experiences that we are creating for them as a brand and as different organizations and what are those touch points and then thinking through, okay, now that we have this ideal use case or this ideal part of the journey that we're going after, what is the technology and the data stack that is supporting that? And then what are the additional tools that we can test on top of that to really drive that meaningful engagement? I think that that makes a ton of sense, particularly, you know, in service of creating meaningful engagements for consumers or, you know, end users as as the the primary kind of objective, right? And recognizing that data or tool or technology or whatever the case is, is a means to an end to achieving to achieving that, right? And that could be, I think, looked in an, from an internal perspective as well, right? Standing up tools and platforms that make the lives of employees as end users uh, better to be more efficient or effective at what they're doing. Um, and I think 
I, 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 so that really resonates with, with me. And so I'm curious though, you know, we talked a little about like the direction of these different tools, platforms, capabilities like gen AI, but also experiences that consumers are going to be interacting with are going to change, right? We're seeing the onset of like AR VR or metaverse or whatever the case is. And they're more gamified. They're more interactive. They're more immersive. And those will start to bleed into traditional like retail experiences. So, you know, you know, we're only just figuring out how to capture data successfully on like a traditional website. What's, how are we going to solve this problem? I think for these types of new immersive experiences that almost bleed across reality and digital and mixed reality and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I do think immersive experiences are going to start blending the lines of how we think about traditional versus digital versus augmented reality and all those different touch points. Ultimately, I do think it starts with, again, understanding how is the consumer behaving and how are they interacting with these different environments? So right. going back to the idea of a website, a website might be with Gen AI and different capabilities for Gen AI, a website might be used very differently by consumer in two years from now than it is today. Um, and so trying to solve for everything at the current moment, knowing that there's these new technologies and knowing that there's this blending of the ecosystem and where people are in the consumer journey of these touch points is going to be very challenging. Um, so I do think it comes back to, again, really understanding what are those specific touch points that we're trying to understand, um, really get the, the use cases around, well, what are the types of data that we need to capture of course, in a, a consumer privacy safe way. And then also then how do we translate that data into something meaningful so that we can build better experiences for consumers going forward? It's going to be very difficult sitting from our position now trying to create something that's fully future-proof in the in the future with all these emerging technologies. But I think the best that we can do is again, you know, put ourselves in the seat of the consumer and try to understand where they are and what are the types of information that they'd want as they're in their immersive journeys or in their, these experiences where there is more blending across the, the different touch points and digital and traditional. Um, and then from there, working backwards to say, okay, well, what is, what is the infrastructure that we need to start investing in now to be able to right. get to that point in the future? Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, as somebody who works in, in the space as well, just super excited to actually see this stuff come to life. I think, you know, particularly, uh, uh as, Gen Z, for example, who has been brought up in a fully connected digital reality, you know, upbringing and just immersed in technology where connecting and interacting with people and experiences in these environments is so much more second nature, right? Almost first nature, if that's even a, a term. But to see how that, as they become consumers with buying power, as they enter the workforce, how they also influence kind of how we capture data, how we leverage data to drive these experiences. I'm just particularly excited to observe the next five to 10 years, um, especially as a gaming nerd and somebody who grew up in digital environments. Also, I want to see how this stuff comes to life. I'd love to now maybe circle way back, right, and to touch a little bit on your time brief time going into kind of startup space. I think lots of people, I'm sure even people on teams that roll into you um, often flirt with this idea of going from a larger organization to a startup. There's obviously opportunity for very lucrative kind of returns. There's opportunity for big impact. There's opportunity for accelerated learning. So it's obvious like what attracts people to them. But the reality is not always as, as great as, you know, what people hope it might be once they're actually in it. I'm 
curious with your experience, right? What was it necessarily that didn't fit inside of that uh, time and maybe providing some perspective on that? And then also, how did you kind of weigh going back? I know that obviously you got connected by um, back to Razorfish, but with an opportunity to maybe address some of the things you were looking for previously that could be addressed now. But I, I'm very curious, you know, because as many people kind of weigh these options, what your guidance is and what your experience was. Yeah, I think for, for me personally, as I mentioned, I kind of went into it with a, a more naive mindset of, oh, if you're going into a startup, you can create everything from scratch and you can really design the, the ecosystem that you want to design from the future or from the ground up for the future. Um, you know, and the startup was a great environment and really interesting for me to understand that, you know, in a startup, you're, you're trying to do multiple things at once. So right. the environment that you're building might not be able to solve everything at once. And I had this idea before joining that, okay, well, everything is going to be you know, this, this roadmap that's solving every, you know, everyone's vision. Um, and that wasn't the case. And so I really actually enjoyed my time there because it was just a different way of understanding data and understanding um, the roadmaps of, of where different brands, so smaller startups versus large organizations were along those roadmaps. Uh, and then also thinking about from what I was looking to do in my career um, and, want, and wanting to do from a, just a, a data strategy perspective that maybe it wasn't the right fit because there's so much building going on at the same time. That was very exciting. But I think, you know, I think for me coming in, because I had that naivety of, oh, well, it's all going to be set, um, probably a little bit more of a mismatch than if I had just stayed or looked at a larger corporation. And so from a guidance perspective, I don't think that there's necessarily, um, you know, a right or a wrong path for individuals going to a startup. I think it just depends on what they're looking for. And I think for me, it was very clearly I had this idea that all these kind of data challenges that we were trying to solve for and using big data, that was still being built. And it was something that I could be part of. But I think I realized that, you know, once I started talking to folks about coming back to Razorfish, that maybe there was um, a different way to get there than I had initially thought when I had left. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting to hear they say that because even for myself, right, as and we'll get into motivations and motivators in a second. But as somebody who's motivated by like big impact or like, you know, big opportunities, let's say big reward personally, you know, it, it's it's hard not to look at some startup opportunities as, um, you know, a, a viable path for, for myself or for, for whomever the case might be, you know, for me, it's a little bit harder now. I've, you know, two kids who I can't, uh, uh falter on anymore because the day, daycare costs are crazy these days. But that said though, once upon a time, the decision was a little hard to make, but, um, it, I think it, it what I appreciate about the transparency, right. And, and your willingness to share that is that it, you know, some of what you envision may not come to life in the way that you expect it to. And that's something you have to be prepared for kind of going into a new environment, especially one that changes as quickly and fluidly and is as strapped for hands as a startup environment, right? So I, I think that's super valuable for, for me to hear, but also I think for listeners who might be mulling over that um, decision to hear. Now, speaking of motivators though, and obviously it's something that you look to understand in the people on your teams, I am curious about kind of your motivators. It, you have to, to grow at the rate that you have and accelerate the rate that you have inherently you are a motivated person right so i would love to understand kind of what they are and and how maybe they've changed over time or if they have at all and and i guess what are you aiming for down the line to achieve over the next i don't know five ten years like what what are you motivating motivated towards now 
I think the biggest motivator for me, even when I think about making that shift initially into marketing and into data was this idea that there's just so many cool things that you can do with data that is beneficial to consumers, beneficial to people, beneficial to companies. Um, and so I think for, for me, the primary motivator on the team is how do we unlock a lot of these opportunities with our clients that are asking these really interesting challenging questions about their business, but where we can have some creativity and showing this is what we can see from the data and this is how that might influence your strategy. And so it's really being able to provide an environment where we can do really cool work and impactful work for our clients that the teams also find interesting because they're able to solve a challenge or problem in a completely different way. I think that's one of the the primary motivators specifically for me and the team and that I think, um, you know, as I've spoken about just the vision for the data team overall over the next few years is really how do we do more of this cool work that's impactful and making a difference for people and for companies. Um, I'd say going forward, you know, five years from now, I would love it for us to be known as a team where all these different individuals have come together and really kind of thrived in their careers to do that th- that exact thing, which is Very put cool. on a, a creative hat of being able to solve these really interesting challenges that quite honestly, um, it's, it's cross-functional, right? It's not limited to data, but where you can really look at it from, here's the data that I have, here are the analyses and the models and the infrastructure that I build, can build, but here's how I'm partnering with our media teams, with our strategy teams, and with our creative teams to build a better experience for end consumers. I would love for us to be really known for that. Uh, and so that's something that, I, you know, every day that I'm working towards as we're thinking about how we elevate our partnerships and our relationships with our, with our clients. I, you know, I, as another, again, as a person who's in the data profession, I think, and a, a analytics teams, data teams, especially when tied to IT historically, you know, often looked at in different organizations, different industries as cost centers, right? But the way you just articulated it, right, in terms of the type of cross-functional collaboration and ability to impact experience and the actual end result, impact business results, that starts to change the nature of how analytics or data teams can be perceived as value driving units that can facilitate some of that cross-functional collaboration and bring to life these exciting experiences and actually fuel them, in fact. And I think that to me is exciting to hear from a leader like you um, because it validates kind of where I hope data is going more broadly across all um, organizations and so and industries. So to hear you kind of have that as the main driver of what you and, and um, your team at, at uh, Razorfish are building towards is really exciting. And I think uh, anyone who's in a, a data role who hears this should be excited to hopefully have replicated or reflected in their organizations as well. Um, I'll say, you know, as a closing thought quickly that I think For anybody, whether it's data or otherwise, what I've found particularly valuable in kind of your and I relationship over the years is that it's great to have somebody who is accelerating, uh, you know, either similarly to you or at a faster pace that you can connect with in like a non-competitive way and learn from and validate the directions that you're going, the things that you're doing, the things that you know, you're seeing in the industry or in the space and have that kind of thought exchange, I've personally found it immensely valuable and have looked to replicate it in folks, you know, outside of organizations as well. Um, because it's just, I think, hugely valuable. So I think that's uh, one big takeaway for me and something I encourage folks to, to find in peers and in colleagues inside or outside of their organizations. But more than anything, uh, CC, this has been a great conversation. I think enormous amounts for people to take away from, learn from, and apply to their own careers. And as always, great chatting with you. And I appreciate you coming on and being willing to share. Yeah, it's always great chatting. And thanks again for having me, Peter.